I'm a user, I'm having, you know, this issue. And then you get the product line. Well, that's really hard because the database is structured this way. <laughs> it's like, right. tell it to someone who cares, fix it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like my customer does not care at all that we have a weird database. Like that doesn't matter. Right. And they just yeah. want to use the thing. This is Aaron May. I'm John Henry Forster. And this is Awkward. Silence. Silence. <laughs> Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Awkward Silences. Uh, We are here kicking off the new year. It'll be 2019 when you listen to this with Maggie Crowley, and she is the Director of Product Management at Drift Conversational Marketing. And we uh, are so happy you're here, Maggie. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. I'm super excited to be here. Welcome, welcome. So we wanted to talk to Maggie about doing research in the context of product, in the context of working at Drift. And Drift, as you probably know who are listening, is, you know, a company kind of really built on human connection and being close to customers and helping their customers be close to customers. And they, as a company, want to be close to customers and user research is about being close to customers. So a great guest we have with us today. So tell us about that. What is, you know, why is user research important to product and what does that look like and and what does it look like at at Drift? Sure. So for me, it's hard to separate out the concept of research from what a product person does all day long because I think about as a PM, one of your jobs is to understand the problem that you're trying to solve for a customer. And fundamentally, in order to understand a problem, you're doing research in some way, shape, or form. So to me, research is really about how can I better understand my customer and how can I better understand what they're trying to accomplish in their job. And so specifically at Drift, we're all about conversations and scaling conversations. And so we are con- we have the side benefit of being a chat platform. So we're constantly talking to customers through our own software. But in general, because we're always trying to have conversations in real time, we're user research is sort of like part of the conversation we're having with customers. So I think a good example of how that plays out in reality is we have some shared Slack channels with some of our biggest customers. And so what, yeah, what that does is it allows you to have, you build this like real person to person connection with a set of customers. And then they're sort of with you all along your product journey. And because you can talk to them all the time, you get to know them, you get to know what problems they're having What, you know, you know, when all of a sudden they have a big quarterly review coming up because the Slack channel starts firing and they're like, I need that number. How can you help me do this thing? And then you start to get a feel for who they are. And I think for me, that's part of that research process and part of how conversations contribute to it. I love that Slack is a way of doing like kind of informal longitudinal studies. (laughs) Yeah, it's amazing. Because I think about for me, I'm trying to find out what what outcome is my customer trying to get for themselves and how do I help them get there? And so being able to hear them constantly talking about their job is a really useful way to get that because it's sort of hard to figure that out in like a very specific setting. Yeah, the composite of a user is something that kind of like builds up over time, right? You like add on from here and there. And then if you have this kind of constant stream, you can kind of like put it together and have like a better view of like what different personas look like and, and all of that. Right. Um, one thing I always think about with research as a product person is um, 
ideas come from everywhere, right? So some ideas come from the top and you can, you know, there's like snide comments about like, those are always the bad ideas or whatever, but um, the, uh, or the from sales or from users or from marketing or from your own product team or from the data, right? And um, I think everyone comes at them, you know, consciously or not with uh, a different bias, depending on where the idea came from. Mm -hmm. And then research is really that layer that kind of like is the equalizer of, you know, let's try to actually pull our bias out of like who came up with the idea and instead get to like the baseline of do people care about this? Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think that we have the benefit of having really experienced founders who do have a very strong opinion about products. So we do often have that, you know, founder idea come through. But I think, again, what's interesting is that, you know, pull four or five quotes from direct customers on a certain topic and that's always going to win. You talked about... Um how you're working to be, you know, very outcomes focused and how you're pushing building products and how mm -hmm. research is a tool to do that. Can you tell us a little bit more about like, what that actually looks like? Yeah, I think, again, I'll just give a specific example because I think that's going to make easier for the audience to understand. But for me, the products that I work on at Drift are focused on marketers and helping marketers be more successful. So when I think about outcomes, the thing I'm thinking about is, what is the mark? What is my marketer judged on in their job? They're judged on bringing more leads in the door and qualifying them and getting them to their sales team. So for and me, you, you know that from talking to marketers, is that how? Yeah, you know, yeah, right. yeah. And and I mean, you guys probably have a marketing team. We have a marketing team. I just go right. and talk to them, and <laughs> I know, you know, what does their monthly review deck look like? What are they? What metric are they on the hook for in their business? And it's bringing business in the door. So if that's who the person I care about what they're doing in their life, how can what we're building impact that number, right? Because like rather than saying, oh, my marketer has a problem with X, how can I help my marketer achieve their goal in their job? That's always going to be more successful for us in terms of building a product. So that's when I think about outcomes, like that's the type of outcome I'm trying to figure out how to get to because I think for, if you can help your, your customer achieve what they're trying to achieve in their own life, they're going to love your product. And so then are you using research primarily to kind of validate the solution that gets to that outcome or to prioritize the outcomes that matter the most or the context in which those outcomes matter or how, how does it kind of play together? Yeah, I think it's, it's really all of the above because it, and it also depends on the type of research, right? So I think for us and for me in particular, I'm, I'm at any given time doing sort of generative research of just how can I understand who my customer is better and what they care about. Maybe we're doing specific, um, I think Pluralsight calls it customer confirmation testing. So figuring out specifically whether the thing that we want to build is going to achieve the outcome that we wanted that specific feature to have. You know, so I think there's like a range of testing and research that you might want to go through for a given product. And all of those different pieces sort of ladder up into prioritization, which, you know, I, I, I think we, that's a whole nother podcast in itself, like how to pick a feature. I think there's probably a million different ways to do that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Do you guys, uh, just a side question, yeah. like, do you guys embrace the like meta-ness of your product and company in the sense of like, you have a marketing team, you have a sales team that I'm sure gets a lot of benefit out of your tool. Cause we have oh, some yeah. of that as well. It's like, we do research too. And like we use our own stuff. Yeah. I, I, Having now been in a company like that as a product person, it will be really hard, if ever, to go to a place where that's not the case because it makes your life so much easier because you have that like first ring of, of dog fooding that's mm -hmm. your own company. 
and I, but I also think on the other hand, if, if your own company isn't using your feature or isn't seeing success with your feature, then that can also be a little challenging loophole that you have to work, think about. Yeah. Yeah. That's a red flag. The, um, the question I was going to ask is, um, do you think like with that dynamic, uh, you know, the whole quote of like, you are not your user, does it make it more important to go out and make sure you're getting outside perspectives or like less important because you have some internal crutches to lean on? I think it makes it, it more important because when it's your own product, the team gets really used to using it the way that it is and they're less able to identify problems with it. So I think you start to hear things like, oh yeah, how you do that is X and we have a workaround that's Y. And then you start to just, you close off, I think, opportunities that you might otherwise see if you're just talking to a customer who doesn't have as much built-in understanding because your team picks up some of the technical challenges or they know, oh, that piece of code is really old and I know it's really hard for the team to fix. So I focus over here. And I think that part can sneak in and make it a little bit dangerous to trust just your own use case. Yeah, totally. No, I'm thinking about all the times of, you know, whether as a customer internally, it's like I'm, I'm a user, I'm having, you know, this issue. And then you get the product line. Well, that's really hard because the database is structured this way. <laughs> it's like, right. tell it to someone who cares, fix it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like my customer does not care at all that we have a weird database. Like that doesn't matter. Right. They just yeah. want to use the thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do, do you guys use, you mentioned the Slack channel is um, a, a valuable place to kind of like pick up, you know, what these people are thinking about day to day and what, what matters to them in their role. Will you use that? Like, so I would, I guess, typically call that kind of like passive insights. Like you're just kind of collecting stuff as chatter happens. Yep. Um, will you also use that channel for like active research and going out and be like, Hey, will anybody talk to me or, you know, yeah. send out a screenshot and see what people think or. Yeah, absolutely. So I think a, we, we can listen in on those channels. And I will say also that there is a limit to how many channels you can be in, obviously. And it there is a risk associated with being in the channel because then, you know, you also have to be there for your customer and they might have needs of you that you might not want to be providing all the time. Um, so there's definitely like, it's not always amazing. But I think um, it's a great tool for recruiting for a more formal user test. Because I've always felt like that's one of the, as I'm sure you guys know, because you solve for this, one of the hardest problems with doing research is getting the people to do the research. So being able to have that channel and that direct line to someone makes it so much easier because then you cut out so much of the the time that you have to spend waiting for someone to give you feedback. So we very often will do things like, hey, customer, we're thinking about this problem. Does anyone want to jump on the phone in the next couple of days? And usually someone will raise their hand and say, sure, I'd love to. Or we'll throw in an envision link or we'll throw in a picture and we'll just say, give us your quick thoughts on this. And that's a, a good way to kind of A, indicate where we need to do more testing, but B, get some some quick feedback. How is that structured in terms of, you know, who has access to those Slack channels or how does that information get shared with people who might benefit from those insights? Yeah, it's something that our customer success team does um, for some of their clients. And if it's a really if it's a really important client or a certain tier or whatever, I don't know the how they do this but if they have one set up and they think that's an easy way for them to communicate usually one of a product member might get tagged in because they're having a bug or they're curious about how a feature works and then we just kind of stick around and then you you know depending on our relationship with that customer we can pop in whenever is appropriate um but again i think it just it's i'm not sure we have a very formal sense of when we should and shouldn't do that but it's just a channel that we have that i've found to be really useful 
How do you, um, how do you kind of balance like the scrappiness of something like that and like the immediacy and the ease of use with like, you know, against the approaches that are a little bit more formal and like deliberate about making sure you, you know, get coverage from all your personas or don't hit the same customer too many times so that they don't like overweight the sample. I am, um, I have like a real bias towards like done is better than perfect. So I kind of like have a soft spot for the scrappiness of like, I'd rather have a conversation than not because the overhead of doing it the other way was too much. But, um, I do think there is like a real you know, there's a real challenge there, right? Of like a bias of the loudest customers are the ones who are willing to hop on a call. And so I only get feedback from them and I'm actually missing stuff or, um, is that something you guys think about as a team? Yeah, we do. And I'm not sure we have perfectly solved that problem. Again, I think I agree that we would rather get feedback full stop than spin our wheels, trying to make sure that we're, we have the perfect level of feedback from the right mix of personas like you mentioned, it's just really hard and time consuming to do that. And I think if you have a good understanding of your customer and you have good intuition, you don't always need that. I think, again, it would really depend for me on the type of feature that you're working on, right? Like if it's a really complex, new, high risk thing, I would really want to lean into making sure we got a better selection of feedback versus something that we know is going to be the right thing and we just need some quick feedback. But again, we just hired um, or just started doing more formal user research as a way to balance that ad hoc feedback that we're getting. And we started as a test because, again, it was sort of new for us. And we're really seeing a ton of value in having this more regular feedback, more formal testing to balance out the quick stuff that we usually do. What uh, What does formal testing mean? What's that look like? Yeah, so I think we have bi-weekly user tests that we're doing with a user researcher in our office. Hope Ideally, when someone comes in and she runs them through a structured test. Um, and it's sort of, we, if you have a design ready or if a feature is in QA or you have something ready, she can get it on her list and she'll go through and try to understand the questions that you have about whatever feature it is that you're interested in testing. And again, it's super new. We've only been doing it for I guess when this podcast goes out a month or two. So we're still trying to figure out the best way to digest the learnings from those sessions. But just having those videos, and we're sharing video clips out to the teams, having those videos and having someone tag, oh, at minute 25, they talk about this topic has been so useful for all of us and so much more efficient. Um, I mentioned before of like, you know, where different ideas come from, uh, within our team, we all have our pet ideas. One of mine is definitely like recurring sessions of like, like you mentioned every other week, let's just make sure we always talk to a set user. And then Mm -hmm. as the sessions approach, we'll figure out what to, you know, what to use them for. So, um, and do like the opposite of like the don't at me, like if you're a user researcher, please at me and tell me if you like to work that way or not. Cause I would love to get more feedback on, uh, on if that's helpful for other other teams, but it makes a ton of sense to me. And it's cool that you guys are having some success with it. Yeah. And I think, I, I should have spoken to our head of design. I think the one of the things that's amazing about it is that if we just know that we're always, we always have that test, then we can work around it as a product team. But also it's so much easier for our user researcher, Freya, to recruit for those tests, right? Because she always knows that this is this cadence that we want to do them on. And then she can come up with her own process for doing that. And then we always know that it's going to happen. So it just makes it much more efficient for, I think, everyone on the team. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're like the fixed cost are getting <laughs> amortized, yeah. right? Cause you said, yeah, that exactly. Yeah. Uh, Freya sits on the design team, design sits on the product team. Is that we're all, when we, at Jeff, when we talk about the product team, it's product engineering and design all together. So there is a design org and engineering org and a product management, I guess, org, and we're all sort of equals. 
Cool. You, um, you mentioned a uh, risk at one point earlier in, in the mm-hmm. conversation. And do you guys factor that into like how much research you're going to do? So if it's a feature, like I, I tie a, a lot um, when I think about risk to like how expensive it is to build. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it's something that's, you know, maybe it might flop, but we can do it pretty cheaply. I'm a little bit more bullish on like, we can try it for real. And if we have to throw that code out or, you know, eat that investment, you know, maybe that's okay. And other cases, if, you know, if the build cost or the uncertainty is high enough, like the diligence on the research pays off like much, you know, pays back much more. Is that mm-hmm. something you guys like think about in terms of like how much you will research a given idea or? Yeah. Yeah. We, I, we have a similar process, although we sort of frame it differently. The way that we think about it is sort of, we, we commit to shipping a new feature basically every single month. And that means it sort of rotates through the different teams, sort of who's up for the big, the big ship of the month. And we think about those as sort of customer launches and then market launches. So customer launches would be follow-ups on features that we have or big new improvements, V2s of things that we know are just going to continuously improve a feature. And then we might have some market leading launches that we think are going to be big new things that are going to drive our business forward sort of step change wise versus just a follow-up feature. So for those bets, we do a lot more research for those ones, obviously, because we're still, it's stuff that we would want to understand more about. We don't, we're not as familiar with in the first place. So I think as part of that, we do a lot more research, but we also have a process of breaking those things down into very small chunks so that even when we're shipping the first piece of that, it's still super scrappy and something we could throw out. So Yes. How did you guys land on the on the monthly launch process? We we talked to um in a different not for the podcast but in a different conversation with uh, Hit and Saw a few months ago, and he mentioned mm-hmm. something very similar of like loving that approach. Um, and just curious how you guys landed on that as the uh, as the way to do it. Yeah, I think he's actually an advisor for Drift, um, oh, cool. and he knows our founders David and Elias. So I'm actually not sure how we landed on it. That happened. I've been a Drift for about a year, and that was in place by the time I got here. So I think we just believe in making sure that you can always, let me put that differently. I think you can always keep your products moving forward if you can commit to something like dates. Committing to dates is really important. And I think a lot of product teams struggle with getting features out the door. And the way that we've figured out how to ship products is such that we focus on dates and then we work backwards. And so that's what allows us to hit those monthly cadences. But again, it requires you to be really ruthless in how you approach what scope has to be involved in a feature, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. How often does research uh, not make it to the cutter? Is there always, because you're so scrappy and kind of, you know, minimum viable research is, is something always happening? Mm-hmm. I don't think we have done anything without research of some, in some fashion. I don't know if there's ever been, and if there, if there has been, I'm, I would guess that they've been the features that have failed. I would imagine are the ones that didn't hold water and didn't stick around for very long. You know, the, the pet features, I feel like never really make it when right. you do that. So yeah, we try really hard. And again, we have sort of an unfair advantage in having a chat tool that it's so easy to talk to customers that it would be sort of wild to me that we wouldn't speak to at least a handful before something went out the door. Yeah. How many, um, rough estimate, how many customers have you talked to since you've been at Drift personally? <laughs> oh my gosh. I talk, I'll give you a weekly answer because yeah. I talk to two to three customers a week, probably, if not more. Um, so over the course of the year, math, whatever, a lot. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> what's, been your, what's been your favorite or most interesting part of that doing um, so much customer talking so regularly? 
That's a good question. I think for me, it's the way that we approach our customers, again, being conversational and readily available means that our conversations with our customers are much more candid than they would, I think they had been for me in the past at different companies. So the customers really know who I am. They know what my email address is. They know how to find me on Twitter. They know they can talk to me all the time. And so you can't hide behind some of the more standard product management language around whether or not you're going to do a feature. I find that I have to be much more candid and honest about what we're doing and why. And that's been the biggest change because you talk to the same customers over and over again and you form relationships with them. And then all of a sudden, you know, so-and-so John is going to call you and say, Hey, remember we had that conversation. Why didn't you build that feature the way I wanted you to? And then you're sort of, you owe it to that customer to explain yourself. So I think for me, just being open and figuring out how to bring your customers along on the research journey that you're on has been the biggest change. It feels like you guys have a very like effective and progressive marketing team. Do they participate in the research as well to kind of know like how people are talking about this or do you just kind of like share what you learn after the fact or does that kind of like fit in anywhere? Yeah, they're incredible. And working with a marketing team like that just makes our lives and our jobs way easier because they're so, they hype customers up. And so customers are excited to be part of the Drift community and then they want to be involved in all this, which also makes user research a lot easier. So that's one thing that they do. They get our customers super excited about being part of the brand, which is awesome. And then we have a product marketing team that's also along, they sit with us. So right around where my desk is, we have Cody and he sits with me and he's listening into all these conversations. And so they're part of the, products building process. So I think sort of organically, we're all starting to use the same language about a certain feature. When you say you use the same language, is that ripped from the customers? You're you using the language that they're using or the... What's, we? What's that? I try to. I think my, my feeling is that the best way to describe a feature is in the words of a customer. So if they're describing a problem in a certain way, that's how I want to describe it. If they describe, if they name a metric a certain way, or if they describe a page a certain way, I just want to mirror that language because then there's no cognitive overload. They know exactly what it does. Their expectations are properly set. I think that's really hard to do a lot of the time, especially if it's a feature and you have some sort of internal slang for it. But I think the more, the more we as product people can do that, just the better everyone's life is going to get. Um, to switch gears a little, um, I feel like product, right. Is this like weird mix of different disciplines of, you need like a little engineering, but you're not an engineer. You need like a little design, but you're not a designer. Um, and so I think you also need a little research, but you're not a researcher. Um, and at least for me, when I'm starting out my product career, there's definitely like the imposter syndrome of like, you really want to like make it seem like, you know, what you're talking about and being persuasive and, and kind of championing your ideas. Um, and I think that's a little in conflict with like the admitting we don't know, and I need to talk to people to learn what's right and this and that. Um, do you have advice for people who are maybe like earlier in product and, and like how they should approach research or, or things they should be aware of? Yeah, it's an interesting question because to me, the more you could admit that you don't know, the more powerful your ideas can be. Because when you can under when you understand what you don't know, then you know what to research, then you know where to focus your metrics and your quantitative analysis and who to talk to. And then when you do come to a resolution or an insight, you have all the backup research that will 
help your team understand why you made the call that you did. So to me, I think a superpower is actually saying, hey, I'm not technical. Help me understand what you're doing in words that make sense to me. Hey, I'm not a designer. Help me understand why this design is going to help the user accomplish X or, you know, why this feature is actually going to move this business metric because, you know, that's that's the magic of the the product manager is the person who's sitting in between all those those pieces of the business and saying, how is this going to get us to to wherever we're going. And if you, if you are too knowledgeable in certain, in an area, or if you're not, if you don't know what your blind spots are, then I think you're much more likely to miss, miss something along the way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The transparency I think is very underrated, right? Especially just like in your ideation. Uh, Mm -hmm. I was talking to somebody else earlier this week and it's like, if you are only bringing your like final, like fully cooked ideas to even internal teams, um, and really championing them, then over time, it looks like you are very opinionated and you always have to have your way because you're always showing them your best idea that you've thought about a long time. If you're like bringing them along throughout the process where like you're bringing up ideas, you're killing ideas, you're bringing up ideas, like it shows that you are, you know, you're, you're iterating and you're learning and it's not just like <laughs> you think you know everything. And um, I think people sometimes try to like keep that part hidden and then just present the final product. And it's like, no, 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 get more people involved throughout. It'll, uh, it'll like help trust and, uh, and everything else. Yeah, I 100% agree. And we have a thing that we call story time that we do. And that's at the beginning of a project when the PM has sat down and done some research and has defined a job to be done as a framework that we use, which I'm sure you've heard. They define a job to be done and pull some information together and they write a one pager. And then the full team, so design, engineering, product, and whoever else is interested or has specific knowledge about the thing gets in a room together. And then the goal of that meeting is to understand the problem and come up with research questions. And that's the start of every single feature that we build. You have to do a story time. And that means that every single person on the team is involved in uncovering what we don't know and then figuring out how we can answer those questions. So that's part of how we make sure that everyone is involved in research and everyone is approaching it like, hey, we don't really know what the solution is. Let's make sure we understand all the different pieces before we move forward. Um, this has been great. I feel like I have like a decent picture of what like research looks like yeah. at Drift and how it fits into shipping products so much. One thing we didn't talk about and I'm curious about is the quant side. Mm-hmm. Um, you have analysts who's looking at who's looking at that to bring that to story time or to other, you know, um, parts of the process. Yeah, we're in a really interesting transition on that front right now. Before when we were small enough when you only have a certain number of customers and you're an early stage startup, you don't really need, in my opinion, a ton of that because you can just talk to everyone, right? It's relatively easy to get a sense for what's happening with your product. Like you don't need serious product analytics if you don't have a ton of customers. As your business grows, obviously that that changes and that be, the burden for metrics becomes higher. And so now we're moving into, we've grown really, really fast. We're scaling really fast and we need to have a better handle on those types of things. And so we're ramping up on the quantitative side. So for us, the way that we're starting to think about that and the way that we want to implement it for all of the stuff that we do is making sure we have a target for what a feature is supposed to accomplish and being able to measure whether the feature accomplishes that target. And we also want to have a timeline. So how long is it going to take us to get move that number from here to there? And what are the steps that we're going to take in between those two things? And so then that all of that would roll up to, you know, the area of the product that you're working on would also have sort of a North Star metric and all the features should ladder up to that one thing. I feel like Anything I'm going to steal story time. Yeah, story <laughs> like time is the best, <laughs> one of the absolute best things that we do. We all love it. And it really, I've seen, especially for 
engineers who've worked at other companies who haven't had a chance to be part of that discussion, you can just see them light up when it's like, hey, you're going to be involved in this thing. We're not just going to tell you what to do. You're going to be part of the entire process. So do you have lots of story times? That's the kickoff. There's one story time per feature. Yeah, we story time. We go back and do research. Designs are happening. Research is happening. And then when we get to the point where we're ready, then we kick it off. I feel like I would take this paradigm like to the extreme and then be like, now we have nap time. And now we have like, <laughs> just go like fully all in on it. Snack time. It's a good yeah, one. Yeah. Yeah. We've definitely once story timed our way straight into a kickoff, but I think I would probably get in trouble for that one. But we just realized that we had all the answers that we needed. And so we felt like we could just go for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's, I think there's a lot of value in, right. People in different departments don't need to be experts of other departments, but having a little like acumen and a little empathy and a little awareness for what your colleagues are up to and how they approach things. Um, and it goes both ways, but I think there's just like a ton of value that comes out of that in terms of like how teams operate and, and like get the process at large. Yeah, absolutely. I would never, I love the fact that because our marketing and sales are our customers, we have strong ties with them within Drift. And so we really do feel like one team rather than like, ugh, product won't build that feature that I need for, to sell this deal. Makes sense. Makes sense. Awesome. Maggie, what didn't we ask you that we can artfully splice in the middle of the episode? <laughs> I don't know. I feel like we really covered how we think about yeah. talking to customers here. Awesome. Which is cool. Well, you've been a great guest. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. Thanks, yeah, thanks. for having me. I this hope there's cool. enough awkward silences. Thanks for listening to Awkward Silences, brought to you by User Interviews. Theme music by Fragile Gang. Editing and sound production by Carrie Boyd. <laughs> Great, I'm glad. I oh, I wanted to ask, you. what was it like to be in the Olympics? That was oh. like a warm-up. <laughs> I was, I was like, wow, I escaped without someone asking me that question. <laughs> you, like talking, you like talking about it? You know, it's been. 12 years. And I, I still yeah, don't know how to yeah. answer that question in like a succinct manner because I was 19 and it was absolutely yeah. wild. And like, I still can't wrap my mind around the like fever dream that was <laughs> being at the Olympics. Um, but yeah, I'm just, it was really incredible. I got super lucky with a lot of different things to allow me to make that team and have that experience. Cool. Cool. Did you meet like a super famous person? Am I asking like all the basic questions? I feel like I'm being like so annoying. <laughs> uh, no, I get asked because um, I was a speed skater if I knew Apollo Ono. That makes sense. I did. Um, we were on the same team. Checks and out. And then people ask me whether the Olympic Village was as crazy as it seems. <laughs> I have to say I was a super nerdy 19-year-old who was also in college, so cannot confirm. <laughs> um yeah. And then some people ask me what it was like to be on in spandex in front of billions of viewers. <laughs> just as awkward as it sounds. <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah. Cool. Um, yeah. I think we probably hit everything, right? I don't... Yeah. yeah right. Cool. This is a fun one. I think it's going to be good. Good.